Hello, I'm Donna Edda, and this is the Interested Podcast, a show that shares our collective wisdom to inspire health, love, and personal growth. I'm both excited and nervous to bring you this conversation with Falgani Mather on conscious parenting. With a background in psychology and a master in counseling, Falgani incorporates EFT tapping with traditional talk therapy in her work. I'm really excited because this method works. You will hear about my story in the interview. But I'm nervous because it's quite unconventional and some people might think it's weird. In the midst of the pandemic, we're all spending more time with our children and the tension is real. I just finished spending four hours homeschooling my girls and my patience is completely out the window. I'm looking for answers to help me through this. I hope the content you are here will bring some ease and compassion to the situation. This is not a how to fix your child conversation. We will explore what it means to be a conscious parent, letting go of our stuff, and why we should stop trying to fix our children. The truth is, we don't always get it right. And we don't have to be a perfect parent because we will mess up. And that's okay because we can repair it. So without further ado, he is Falconi Mather. Hi Falconi, thank you so much for being here today. Hi Donna, thanks for having me. Our conversation today is about conscious parenting. The struggle with parenting is real. I think about it all the time. If I'm doing the right thing, if I'm creating the right nurturing environment to help them to become the best that they can be, especially during the time of COVID-19, the struggle is more intensified, as you mentioned to me before. And so this is the reason why I reached out to you. At first, I wanted an actionable list, remember? What can we do? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I I want something that's tangible. And then straight away, you said, what if you knew that if you could just be with your child, you would automatically know what to do? I have to tell you the truth. I remember my first reaction. I was very skeptical. Can you describe what is conscious parenting? Thanks for that reflection. And it's, it's absolutely normal, right? Because, because it is, it's this to do is what we're trained to do, you know, from when we're little, you know, we're, we're almost trained out of our feeling body. We go to school, it's about results, it's about how well you do, what your marks reflect, you know, it's all about achievement and it starts quite little. For most people, you know, even if it doesn't look like that on the surface, um, so there is a big focus on how to do, what to do, how to solve. And that kind of elicits the reaction that you're talking about, right? The, the, but wait, what do you mean just be? That, that's not what I'm talking about. I want a solution. Give me something tangible. Yes. And you know, there's so many books out there. I mean, so many books. When I started doing the conscious parenting workshops that I run, I was in a bookstore with my daughter and I decided to take a photo of the parenting section. I thought, oh, this would look nice on the, on the slide. Yeah. As I took a photo, I realized, oh, there's also another section. And then there was another section. And, you know, there are a lot of books out there, right? So there's a lot of tell me how to do this. But conscious parenting is really about being conscious as we're parenting. And what what the opposite is, is unconscious. So when unconscious meaning we're parenting from past experience, we're parenting without feeling, we're parenting as a reaction rather than a response, Yeah. But it takes effort 
because we, we do most things right out of reaction. We, we don't have to think we, we learn a lot of things automatically, um, which is a great thing, right? Otherwise we'd have to teach ourselves how to brush our teeth every morning. Like we, we, we have to have patterns that, you know, they just run. Um, and unfortunately this happens with parenting too. So conscious parenting is really just about looking at what's really going on. It's about, understanding where your reactions come from. It's about understanding why it triggers you so much when your child's bedroom is untidy. I mean, why is it such a, you know, for example, uh, why does it bother you so much that your child is bad at math? Uh, why does it bother you so much? Because X, Y, Z, you know, we all have our own triggers. And it seems on the surface, and I get this a lot when I'm first working with or talking to parents, I'm like, well, yeah, you know, that's it's just not right. I mean, they should, should, should do it a certain way. And um, it, it seems very obvious, but it's not, because then when we start to explore what the trigger is, because some parents are not triggered by untidy bedrooms, and some parents are. So that doesn't really explain it, does it? But so what's, what's the difference between parenting with a reward chart, for example, every time you tidy up your room, you get a star and you get rewarded Mm -hmm. versus conscious parenting. Do they kind of overlap or it's two different approaches? Well, I I would say that there's nothing right or wrong, but the reward, what I would see is you're teaching them again, only about achievement, achieving. It's the same thing. Versus what? If it's not achievement, then? Well, it's versus about being with what's going on with the child. You know, so if you're rewarding them for cleaning up their room, you know, what does your definition of clean room look like? What does their definition of clean room look like? Why is it important to you, right? So actually, even before staying with what's going on with the child, why are they acting up? Why are they not doing all the things that you want them to do and then offering the star? What's going on? And what's going on with you? How much does it matter that their clothes are on the floor and why, right? We, we don't, there's so much other stuff to, to deal with, right? And this is about parents and like, and, and, and this is, you know, a lot of the stuff that I say um, triggers a lot of people because the norm is, well, of course they need to keep their bedrooms tidy. And I say, well, why? And what's the definition of untidy? And sure, if they've got food in their room for four days, that's not okay by my standards because then there's all of that, you know, uh, it's unhealthy. Uh, but if their clothes are on the floor, well, what's the big deal? Hmm. It's, that's what it is to question, you know, and is it a big deal? And then, you know, you could go to, well, these are the values that we like to instill. And yet, so then if that's not happening, one thing to look at is what does your bedroom look like? And uh, we don't want to look at our stuff. First of all, I want to say this is actually not just a conversation for parents. I think it's really suitable for anyone who is working with children. It could be caregivers and teachers. I think it's going to be so helpful. You teach conscious parenting with EFT. Can you briefly describe what EFT is first before we, we move forward? Sure. Okay. So EFT, it stands for emotional freedom techniques. Okay. And it's a kind of mix between Eastern and Western Talk, the Western talk therapy, Eastern Meridian system. Um, I, because I work primarily as a counselor, which implies talk therapy. EFT is a modality that I integrate with my practice because it actually addresses what plain talk therapy doesn't. Plain talk therapy is only addressing the cognition, the cognitive mind. And EFT is a modality 
that we use. And the way that we use it is we tap on the meridian points on our body um, as we speak about the problem or the issue that we're wanting to resolve or move forward from. Yeah. And as we tap on these meridian points, which looks very unconventional when you're sitting in a chair and, you know, you've, you've experienced that. And yet what it's doing is it's addressing the part of the problem or the part of, or the unresolved emotion that's actually residing in your body. And it is so important to address all of that when you're trying to work with a problem, you know, whether it's like, oh, this really triggers me about my child or whether it's, oh, I'm procrastinating or, oh, I have all this anxiety, right? It's not just in the mind, right? It is in the body, your emotions, that's where they live, that's where they reside. So EFT is a technique that complements talk therapy the way I see it. Is EFT only effective for those who are emotionally attuned? Because what are people uh, who don't want to talk about their feelings, right? The emotions, that's why they're stuck in there in the first place. I would say it's not so much about don't want to talk about their feelings. It's a lot of people are so disconnected from their feelings that, that they can't. So to answer your question, no, it is effective for everybody bar none. But the process might be different for those who are more in touch with their feelings or people who are maybe a little disconnected from feeling or disconnected from what it feels like in their body or if they've dissociated too much from past hurts. I'd say it would affect the process in terms of maybe duration or uh, rather than the effectiveness. So you said that this is not a how to fix your child conversation. You yes. didn't mention that a lady walked out of your workshop and said, Falcony is not teaching me how to fix my child, right? Yes. I've had one person who didn't want to get it or wasn't in the place to get it. You know, it's, it's, we're all doing our best. We're all, um, and I'd say maybe, maybe she was, she had so much stress. She couldn't see past it. And she really, all she wanted at that time was a solution and she wasn't on board. So for example, if I have a child who doesn't want to do their homework, who wants to go to bed late, who wants to eat junk food, who's always on the device, right? These are problems that I want to fix. I want to fix this child. What's your approach? Okay. So the first thing is, sure, there's values that we want to instill in them and there's dissent, right? And this is like a limit setting a boundary kind of breakdown that happens with kids where, you know, you want them to go to bed on time, you want them to get off their devices and they don't want to. And then it all just probably, you know, then the parent either yells or uh, sets stars or boundaries or, and the child is not okay. Right. But we're still looking, like you say, what's the, how do I fix this? Right. So we're in our problem solving brain and we want the child to be in their problem solving brain. So we can just get on and do what I think you need to do. Right. So there's a couple of things there. One is it is important to set boundaries for kids. I mean, absolutely. They actually need us to set boundaries for them, even though it doesn't look like it. And often it doesn't. But what happens sometimes when we set these boundaries, just to reply to the examples that you're asking about, is there is a lot of discomfort with the child, right? They don't want to go to bed early. They want to stay on their devices. So sometimes we we just indulge because okay, it's too much, it's too much confrontation, too much, too fractious, and okay, just fine, just stay on the device, or fine, go to bed later. Or there might be anger, uh, no, you must do what I say, and you have to do it now, or, you know, if you do it now, you'll get a gold star, or, you know, those kind of things. Discomfort, very obvious discomfort that arises in the child. And this is the same thing as what I was talking about earlier or yesterday, 
where when the other, especially the child, our child, who we just want, we just want them to be happy all the time, yeah, really on the surface of things. It's really important for them to also know that, yes, it's, it is uncomfortable not to get what I want. And right now, this is what my caregiver, my parent, who knows better for me, is wanting to sit. But it's our discomfort with letting them sit in their discomfort. So the way I see it is if they're uncomfortable, we want to fix their discomfort. So in order to do that, either we'll indulge or we'll get angry and say, no, go to your room till they do what we want them to do. And then we feel a bit better about ourselves. But if they're not going to bed mm. and they just want to stay up and play and read or whatever mm. it is, mm. Mm. Um, what discomfort are they sitting with? They're just, they just want to have fun. They're not really in a discomfort. When you set your boundary, when you set the limit, there's a discomfort in the child, right? There's dissent, there's, depending on the age of the child, there's either screaming or sulking or something. There's discomfort there. And whenever our child is in any discomfort or causing us discomfort, we want to fix it. So being able to set the boundary and allowing the child to experience their discomfort is really helpful for them. And just let them be like, they can throw a tantrum, they can yeah, be annoyed. And you know, we can reflect that again, depending on the age of the child, that, yeah, I, I totally get that it's you know, you want to stay up and I really need you to get some sleep. And I can imagine that's not what you want to do. And that's what you need to do right now. And again, this is not a cookie cutter, right? Because people say, well, what should I say? And I can't tell you what to say. I mean, I can tell you what I say to my kids and I can say to you maybe what some of my clients say to their kids or what I read in a book, but that's like, you can read it in a book. So many times people are looking for, well, what should I say? What should I do? And you know, I can't tell you because Every child is different. And for those that have more than one child, yeah, you must know this, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter was born when my son was nearly four. And, you know, so I'd had four years almost of being with my son and figuring things out as a parent, right? Like how to get him to sleep through the night and how to get him to eat and all those things. And then when my daughter came along, you know, the feeling was, oh, I've got this, right? Like I know how to do all of that. <laughs> And she, nothing, I promise you. I mean, I can't remember one single thing that worked for my son that also worked for my daughter. So I had to almost learn to parent all over again for a whole different child. And I've only got two kids. And some people have three and some people have four or five or more. And every child is different, right? So if you say to me, what what should I say? Well, you might even have to say different things to different children for the same boundary setting or the same issue. Can you talk about parents' trigger on the child behavior versus managing the child's behavior, right? Yeah, absolutely. Something that we don't realize, I think, a lot of the time, because when something happens with the child that makes you feel sad, bad, angry, uncomfortable, when you have a situation, right, any situation that brings up emotions, our brain scans emotional memory. Yeah, for every similar emotional memory that we've had in our life that are related to the emotions that are being currently evoked with with whatever situation it is. And this happens like in an instant. Yeah. And it informs us about how to respond in this situation or react really. So what we call emotional memory is playing a part in how we are reacting in the present. For example, if, if you were bullied as a child and your child comes home one day and hopefully tells you what happened or cries about it, If you haven't resolved all the feelings that you went through 
and you know, I mean, now as, as adults, we talk about, oh yeah, I was bullied as a child or somebody was bullied in my class. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't seem as intense or impactful as if you were that six-year-old who was being bullied, right? So those emotions, usually we don't look at them if they're not resolved. So if your child comes home and says something that happened to him or her that feels familiar to something that you experienced, and if you still have all of those feelings, it's very likely that you will project your experience onto your child's experience. And as you do this, you are immediately not being there for your child. That trigger of going back to your own experience as a child. Yeah, and this is, this is unconscious. This is the unconscious part of the conscious parenting. We think, oh, I know this. I and mean, this is not a conscious, this is not like thought process, but in the instant, what's happening is emotional memory is being scanned. I know what this is. I remember what it felt like. It felt horrible. It felt I was alone. I was helpless, whatever we felt at the time, right? And in actual fact, your child is a whole different person. The people who potentially bullied him or her are different, different school, different environment. Uh, they might not have felt helpless. They might have felt scared, but if we go back to our memory and imagine that that's what it might have been like for our child, then we're in our own way is how I like to say it. You know, I'm now getting in my own way because actually what I'm trying to resolve, this is a bit contentious, is my feelings of when I was being bullied. Okay. And as long as I'm stuck in my process, I cannot, even though it seems like I'm being there for my child, I'm not. I can't be. Because our own feelings are in the way. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to talk about my experience with you, with your session um, later on in the conversation. But I want to move on to your parenting story. That was a pivotal moment, right? Well, that actually leads on quite seamlessly from what we were just talking about. In the beginning, this was almost nine, almost nine, ten years ago, something like that, where I was training to be an EFT practitioner. So I was doing an EFT training. At the time in my life, I mean, there was a lot going on. I had just separated from my then husband and we were co-parenting. So part of the time I was, uh, had the kids by myself. So I was a single parent. So it was quite a stressful time anyway. My son was about 11 or 12. And we had this... Um, there's so many words for it. I don't know which one to pick, like a really contentious relationship. I I wasn't happy with how he was doing at school. And this is very interesting on hindsight because I was not academically inclined or gifted or however you want to call it. And I don't have high aspirations for my kids. And, you know, it's like, as long as you get through school, I see school as one of those things you have to get through. I'm that kind of parent. So while I was doing the EFT training, you know, we get to partner up and practice with each other. And so, and they say, think of a small problem, which is the most difficult kind of problem to think of. And the thing that came up for me was it really bothered me that my son was terrible at French and at math. I mean, bothered me is an understatement. So what was going on at home was, you know, he'd come home from school and I'd ask him uh, to do his French verbs and I'd print out verbs, French verbs, and I'd pin them on his wall. And then I would test them, test him on the verbs. And, uh, you know, poor kid had just come home from school. All he wanted was some downtime. And then maths, algebra. I taught myself algebra from the internet. So I could 
teach him algebra. I hated <laughs> math in school. I mean, it was crazy, right? And I'd walk into his room and, you know, I'd see him sliding his computer screen and I knew he was actually doing something else. And I, I mean, God, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to be, wanted to be the child of me then. I mean, I, I think I was, it was really, so it was really stressful for me. I'm sure it was really stressful for him. Yeah, he didn't want to be in the same room as me. I also didn't want to be in the same room with him. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure there were some pleasant times too, but really it, it, um, overshad- it was overshadowed by w- what was going on. So this is what I brought up in my EFT training. I said, he's really bad at French and math. So to make a very long story short, what came up really quickly, and this is what I love about EFT, that it takes you, and I could have you know, been to a therapist and we could have talked about this and I'm sure we would have resolved it, but the speed at which EFT seems to access your subconscious to find the root of what's going on. Till today, I've been doing it for so many years, it does not fail to astonish me. So what came up for me was my two worst subjects in school, surprise, surprise, (laughs) were French and math. And I had some real trauma around it, right? So I failed in French. I really struggled with my verbs. With math, I had some traumatic memories, like there was one that stood out. And, you know, I can see it now just laughing. But even when it came up at the time, nine or 10 years ago, I was completely filled with shame. Like I felt my whole body go red when I brought it up. So this, I'd got 13, like one, three out of a hundred. And she pulled me out in front of the class and uh, basically shamed me as teachers are want to do, especially in that kind of generation, right? I did not mean that about all teachers. I love teachers. So excuse me, any teachers who heard what I just said. But there was a generational kind of teaching where I was growing up that it was okay to kind of do things like that. So it was a really shameful experience. You know, she held my paper up, called me out. So these memories came up. So yeah, so I used EFT. I tapped and I resolved my shame and my humiliation and my feelings of angst about what had happened to me uh, within myself. And the biggest thing was that I was so clearly now able to see that, oh my goodness, this wasn't about my son at all. And the realization, it just helped me to pull back. When I say pull back, some of the things I did were, I realized that he was, you know, he was just an average student, you know, he changed academically later, but uh, that's not the point. Like, it wasn't like he wasn't failing. He never failed at anything. First of all, definitely didn't fail in math and math and French. He was just, you know, he was average, which was fine in all the subjects, but it was just these two subjects, right? Uh, It really didn't matter. So I stopped his French tutor who used to drive him mad. I could see it and I knew it, right? (laughs) I had this guy who came over every week and my poor son was an absolute throes of agony he just didn't want that tutor but I pushed it on him and with math I god I was horrible at math I hate math I still hate math why would I teach myself algebra so I what I did there was you know I started this you know the acknowledgement piece that we talked about where I understood it from his point of view you know what it must be like to have this crazy mom who's really just like on your case the whole time yeah I literally I really was it was horrible Uh, you know understand first of all that he wasn't doing badly at math he was just trundling along as some kids do and at the end of the day you know it really didn't bother me but the maths did so we talked about it a little bit and I said and he didn't he wasn't even really bothered about it it was just me but uh, I resolved that by saying you know if you have 
a struggle, like, would you be open to talking to your maths teacher about it? And he said, yeah, sure. And, you know, even now I think maybe he said, yeah, sure, just to calm me down or whatever. And maybe he didn't, maybe he didn't. But, you know, that was many, many years ago. He's doing his third year of university now. He's perfectly normal, beautiful, lovely kid. When you said it was really fast, the EFT, how Mm. fast was it? How long was that session? You know, it wasn't even a whole session. It was 20 minutes. I would 20 minutes. I would say tops because we were partnering in a training. So we tapped. It just popped up like this memory of my French and this memory. And I'd never made the connection before. And also I hadn't tried to make the connection before, right? This is what's really important. This is the unconscious part of the parenting. We're not doing anything wrong. We're not doing anything badly on purpose. Like I don't think any parent wakes up in the morning thinking, how can I mess my child up today? Mm. I mean, that just doesn't happen, right? We're all trying to do our best, but I wasn't thinking about why, But because I was doing EFT and I was thinking, so the question is think about something that bothers you right now. At that time, one of the things that bothered me was what was going on with my son. So you guys went from not being able to be in the same room together to what is your relationship like? I mean, my relationship with my son right now is so beautiful. He's away at university and has been for three years. He's in his last year and we talk on the phone. I don't text him every day. We don't talk every day. But when we talk, it's, we'll talk at least once a week. And we're on the phone for an hour sometimes. And, you know, I'm not making him stay. He's not, you know, it's not like uh, he's trying to go. We just chat. We chat about all kinds of things. And I 125% believe that I would not have the kind of relationship I have with my son today if I hadn't changed it when I did. How quickly did you see the change after you, you realized what was going on? So was it the next day that you, you could change your own behavior and then he, he was able to just relax straight away or did it take a no, week or two? No, of course not. You know why? Because it takes time when rupture has happened, right? We call it like rupture where there's breakdown in communication between parent and child where we haven't been heard like so him as a a young boy he wasn't being heard he wasn't being listened to he wasn't being seen it was just me and me being stalking parent if that's what we're calling me uh (laughs) right and suddenly it doesn't happen overnight and this this is just the nature of trust so if i'm used to this person being this way it takes time to realize that oh really some change is happening and this is not a cognitive cerebral response it's it's a really it's a feeling so if I'm there for him more I'm being different and I did I I can't remember whether I told him why I was stopping the tutor and maybe I did Uh, I really don't remember the process which is what happens when things are just resolved we tend not to remember all those details but yeah it was over time I don't know how long but it was a process years weeks what was it so even if I told you oh it took six months or if I said it took three months and four days it doesn't mean anything to you for you It doesn't mean anything for anyone who's listening because it depends how long the rupture has been happening. It depends what we're talking about. It depends on so many factors. That is so true. (laughs) And this, I know it's so frustrating and I totally hear you because we are, we're all looking for answers. We're all looking for tell me what to do because we have been trained out of, I already know what to do. Going back to the first sentence that you raised as soon as we started this conversation or because nobody knows our children better than us we've known them since they were babies and so when we are able to sit and acknowledge what their experience may be which we can only do once we're not getting in our own way which means we're not projecting our experience now we're just there for them 
when we can sit in that, and depending on the age, sometimes they come up with a solution. So just being seen, being heard, being understood is enough for anybody. Perhaps they can come up with their own solution. But they do. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in my own. I mean, you know, even if you take a little two-year-old, okay, she's really little. She's not that much in her cognition. She's a lot in her feeling and her emotions and, you know, like little kids are so beautiful. So if she falls over, and this is my personal experience with my uh, daughter, and I was in that aspect, I was being a conscious parent, even at that age, even though I didn't know about it. So, you know, they fall over, right? She's very little. And if we say, oh, let's, let's go put a Band-Aid on it. Oh, never mind. It wasn't that bad, right? This is us trying to fix. They're crying or they're a little upset, right? So this is, again, trying to fix. And I invite you all with little kids to practice this. They fall over and you just sit down and get to the eye level and you say, ow, you okay? Ow, did that hurt? You know, she got up. Said, oh, no, it's fine. Just dusted her knees and kept walking. It's just that acknowledgement. And it's really difficult to do for us because we're so trained to fix, fix, fix. And, you know, we talk to our two-year-olds mm-hmm. with, with cognitive brains, hoping that they are also going to engage or expecting them to engage their cognition. And all they want to know, all they want to feel uh, is to be felt. Actually, this leads to the fears of our, of our child's future. What if they fall behind in school? What if they don't get a good job? What if they become a bum, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? What if they mm-hmm. have a horrible life? You know, how far can the acknowledgement go in helping them have a good future? Right. So the fact that we want them to have a good future, of course we do. There are kids. So if they have a good future, it means that they're happy. What does it mean about you as a parent if your child messes up or doesn't have a good job? What does it mean to you? Oh, I think if they don't have a good life, I will be really sad. I will be worried mm-hmm. for their well-being, right? Of and course, I can't be around of forever of to course, take care of, of them. Of course, of course. And you do want them to be happy. What does it mean to you about you? Anything? I'm not doing my job. That's really it in a nutshell. I see this in such a large percentage, myself included, right? Where we see our children's achievements and expressions as a reflection of how we have parented. So I was talking to this parent one time and we were working with, she was really struggling that her son wouldn't get out of bed in the morning in time to go to school. And we got to, okay, so what was the worst thing about that? Yeah. So when we do EFT, we use a lot of curious questions as well. Basically the worst thing about that, when we really got to the bottom of it was that it would mean that he would, you know, he'd be late and being late is not a good thing, right? This is part of her value system. But what does it mean? Like if he's late, eventually it means that she's not a good parent. And I said to her, I said, so if you have an appointment with somebody as an adult and you go and meet them and they're a bit late, do you immediately think of what a bad parent the mother must have been? And that just made us both really laugh out loud. But, but you know, this is what it is. We see our parenting skills reflected in what's happening with our children. And I put to you that it is up to us to instill our values, to instill our family values, our beliefs and, you know, manners and society and how it's appropriate and how it's not appropriate and all of that, of course. Right. But really there's this whole component of letting go because there are other influences, especially when your child grows up. And so there it's about not what they do, 
because it's not all a reflection of your parenting. And we like to think that, and you can throw eggs at me, but it's not. Because we can only do, we can do what we can do and we have, right? We've all parented to the best of our abilities. And sometimes we look back and we think, oh, I could have done it better, but we could do everything better. Just because maybe a child who is now 35 is going through a hard time, maybe they, uh, maybe it was something dramatic um, and you've parented well and, you know, they've generally had good jobs and doing well. And suddenly they, let's say, fall into some kind of financial crisis for some reason, and they're too ashamed of it. And then maybe he's now embezzling. And this is pretty dramatic, but just imagine, right? right? Suppose he embezzled something from his company. Wow. And then he gets found out and that's really shameful. And you think, oh my God, I must have parented so badly for my child to be going through this. And I say, not necessarily. So we try to own their mistakes. Well, absolutely. (laughs) I think most parents do. Right. And that is wow. a whole nother conversation where they are not ours. We are just here to bring them into the world because otherwise, how would they get here? They are not ours. They don't belong to us. No. And this, this, there's a whole letting go conversation that we could have another time. That is, I think, the hardest part of, part of parenting. This, even just being with them, even if they're 13 and you're trying to solve a problem for them, it's like we want them to solve it in the way that we would solve it. But maybe they have a solution that's even better for them because they know their circumstance. And that can happen only when we're sitting with them. Yeah. You know, I used to say this to my kids when they were little, that I'll always love you no matter what. And my son would say, what if I kill somebody? Will you still love me? <laughs> and, you know, this is a really valid question because yes. when, when we're little, we're always trying to make sense of what do I need to do to be loved? And I, say, I would say to them, and they know this now, that I will not like the fact that you kill somebody, but I will always love you. And this is very different. Okay, so loving somebody doesn't mean condoning their actions. So if my son or daughter grew up and they did something really bad in their life when they were 35, you know, I don't have to like what happened, but I can still tell them that, you know, I'm still here for you. Because if I'm not here for you to call or turn to, then, then you're afloat. Then I'm not being a parent. And that's the parenting. It's not about how your child turns out. It's about how you can be there for them, no matter what's happening with them. And then when you can do that, I remember you telling me it's about creating a safe and stable environment. Yeah, for them. And that that really starts from when they're little. It's like, you know, if you're in a storm, right, you're not going to be able to think about solutions until you found pole to hold on to, a safe place. Like imagine you're in a flood and you're being swept around and, you know, all of that. And that's what it feels like for kids, right? Because kids are so much in their emotional body that it's a lot about feelings. So they have to find that safe place first, which we can provide for them. And then the cognition. And, and the, you know, so it's not like we never have to fix their problems. We, we get to that. But that's the second stage. The first stage is acknowledging what's going on, staying with them in their discomfort, which we can only do if we can stay in ours, right? If we can open up space within us. Can you give us some tangible tips on how we can stay with it, with our own feelings and acknowledging them and being there for them? Uh, so the first thing is don't try and fix it. Don't say, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? No, but don't you want, or, or try to make, try to explain to them what's going on right away, right? Because this is all, 
using the cognitive, thoughtful, the part of your brain that can make like rational, flexible choices. But when we're in that emotional state, we're in the limbic brain part of it, for those of you who are interested in the neuroscience of it. And when you're in that limbic part of your brain, when you're being flooded with emotions, you're triggered, you're sad, you just literally cannot access the part of your brain that helps you to think rationally and make decisions and have flexible choices and that kind of thing, right? So when your child is triggered with something, when I say just be with them, first thing is, yeah, don't try and get it. Don't try and engage the rational part of their brain because it just will not work. And you can see it not working. You'll see it not working if you're aware of what's happening. And the discomfort is just staying with them while they're crying or whether they're being angry. And again, when you say give me tips, it again depends on the age of the child. It depends on... And I know this is frustrating, but it's true. It depends on um, how your child receives what you say. I know there are a lot of teenagers that get quite annoyed by this, oh, I can see that you're angry kind of reflection. I know kids who don't like that kind of thing. So you have to find the verbiage that suits. What if a teenager is always on the device and they're on Mm -hmm. social media, whatnot? Then the parent confronts them, hey, this is too much. What is a good way? Like, I can't just sit there and acknowledge, yeah, I know. I know you want to be on social media. I mean, how does that help? Well, you have to follow through with what you want them to do, right? So when you set a boundary, you have to stick to it. Because if you set a boundary and then you indulge, then you're sending them mixed messages. You know, they're like, oh, if I stay on it long enough, mom or dad will just give in. So I'm just going to, that's how they're finding out boundaries on how to push them, right? So what's a good boundary, for example? Well, it depends on you. How long are you comfortable with them spending time on their kids? And then is is it a conversation that is like, if you exceed your time, then there is a consequence? Is it that kind of conversation? And I'm going to keep saying that this is, you're looking for a solution. (laughs) You can find all of your questions, answers in a book, in many books. And I'm not going to give you those answers. When you say, is there a consequence that is a threat? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, on a, on a, again, on a brain-based survival-based mechanism. If you say, if this, then watch out. So you're threatening your child. So I would not go with that kind of consequence. The consequences of not doing their homework. If I worry about them getting into Harvard, then the consequences are for me. But if my focus is on what does it mean for them not to do their homework, if they don't do it, what will happen for them? Then that's really up to them to find out. Are they going to get into trouble with their teacher? Can they handle that? You know, they find out pretty quickly when we let them experience what they need to experience. And this happened with my daughter when she was, gosh, I don't remember, maybe about 11. And she would not go to bed. And she would go to bed at like 10, 30, 11. And oh my goodness, it used to drive me crazy. So, you know, about 8, 8.30, I always ask my kids to go to bed early when they were little. I would say, okay, bedtime, 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 bedtime. And what was happening was literally from about 8 to when she went to bed at 10.30, all I was doing was saying, go to bed, go to bed. Oh my God. I mean, my whole, like I had no evening. Okay. Yeah. So of course, by this time I was tapping quite frequently. So I realized, and even when you are, right, like you've got to realize like, oh, okay, this is becoming a real problem because I actually can't do anything all evening because she won't go to bed. And I I totally believe in a good night's sleep, um, all of those reasons, yeah? And she has to get up and go to school and then I want her to function well at school and all of that. So I tapped. I did some EFT on myself 
And again, I realized that actually what my problem was, my the biggest problem, apart from the fact that she wasn't getting sleep and all of that, and it wasn't like she was falling asleep in class, yeah? So again, it wasn't that dramatic, was that I was not getting any time to myself in the evening, right? And this was a big deal, right? It's the whole thing of, yes. okay, kids are in bed, you I know totally that. totally like, feel that. Right? So I decided... I'm going to let her know that I'm not going to get you out of bed in the morning. I'm going to come in. I'm going to say it's time to get up. And if you don't get out of bed, then you can take yourself to school. I think they used to get rid of that. Oh, I was driving them to school at that point. So, yeah. So, so then you take yourself to school, right? This is the deal. I'm going to tell you to go to bed at 830. And if you choose to stay up, you know, totally up to you. Because I would then, it was also a morning problem. You know, I'd have to go in every three seconds and say, yes. come, on, come on, come on, come on. You're going to be late. You're going to be late. You're going to be late. So I put the whole responsibility of the experience onto her. And what I did was said to her, <clears throat> eight o'clock or whatever it was at the time, it's time for bed, go for a shower. And then I went off and I had my evening. Like she was in a room. It wasn't like she was coming out and saying, play with me or read to me. It was just, she was in her room doing some things. I don't even remember what they were now. And I went away and I did whatever I wanted to do, like read or talk to my friend or whatever, right? And this I can give you a timeline for that it didn't last more than a week because she never did miss a morning. She did get herself out of bed, but it wasn't on me. It was actually really great because she got herself out of bed, but in fear of oversleeping. And she started to realize the value because you see when I'm on her case the whole evening thing, go to bed, go to bed, go to bed. All of her energy is used in rebelling. But now that she has her own time and own space, she can now understand that, wow, actually, yeah, I don't feel so good when I sleep late. You know, she's 17 now. She has the earliest night of all her friends, <laughs> all by herself. Wow. Right. And it was really me allowing her to notice. So it's the same like food. You know, some people say no junk food to their kids. And what I used to say to my kids was, you know what? You want to order pizza from whatever, Pizza Hut, ew. Uh, you know, go ahead and order it. But notice what happens in your body after you eat it. That's all. And, you know, they are so good. And not to say that they don't eat any junk food anymore, but they are so good at discerning how it feels. And that prompts them now to, you know, choose differently. A lot of the time, sure, they're, you know, they're, they're kids, they still eat whatever. It's like you said, right? We're not going to be around forever. So our responsibility also to teach them what they need to know for themselves. And how do they know that? That is so true. You're empowering them and giving them tools and skills. Yes, because we have to let them go. You know, they're hopefully not going to be living with us when they're Yes, please don't. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. So exactly. This, this is the kind of, so this is the consciousness of it. And it does involve a, letting, a lot of letting go. And I think that's really hard for us as parents. I had an EFT session with you because I kept asking all these give me tips kind of questions and you're like, Donna, let's just have a session and experience it for yourself. And I have to say I was blown away because I'm actually a trained EFT practitioner myself mm -hmm. and I have experience and I've dealt with many emotions and I'm like, yeah, I've got a couple of things I want to work on. It's going to be fine. I was bawling my eyes out during the whole session. I had no idea it was, it was going to trigger me so much. 
And, and the issue I will share with the audience is my older daughter went on a play date and the girl that was there was being really mean to her. I was so furious, not so much that the friend was mean because kids are like that. This is their process of learning, but that she had to endure this pain on her own. I wasn't there to help her because it was a drop-off play date. And then when she came home, she had this sobbing that came from deep inside her, right? It's not just this childish wailing cry. And when I worked with you, and it's really like what you said, is our own personal trigger. And my discomfort with the situation led me to remember all my childhood trauma, not all, but like one in particular, a big feeling of feeling lonely and Mm. feeling helpless and not having anyone to turn to. And when we work through it and after the session, you asked me, so what do you need to do? What do you need to do? And I just remember putting my hands over my face. I was crying uncontrollably. And I just said, you know, I just need to make her feel safe and loved. I need to hold the space for her and I need to witness her pain. I need to be there for her, watch it. And, and she will become more resilient from this. And I know that, and I trust that. So I just want to say thank you so much. Oh, of course. And thanks for being open to, you know, doing that with me. Why are some parents not open to this method? If you're asking about resistance, there's a few things there. One is, I think one of the areas is that we all think we're supposed to know what to do as adults. You know, we spend a whole childhood wanting to become adults and then here we are. And why, why do we have to know what to do? Well, sure, we've been told and we've been taught and all of those things. And especially as parents, if you go for a job, first of all, you have to be qualified. Okay, you might be able to walk into a job and say, right, I'm just going to, you know, deliver your food for you or whatever, and they might take you on. But yet there is some kind of training, right, required, or at least a training on the job. And then the job is pretty much the same. So once you have trained in it, you know what to expect, and then you probably just get better at it. And yeah, it's the same, mostly. But what happens with parenting, and we all seem to think we're supposed to know what to do as parents, and I put to you that you, have, you cannot know what to do as a parent because even if you get trained, right, through books and all of and so many of us, right, we read all these books and, okay, it's going to be like this and it's going to be like that. Somebody needs to do a survey on how it actually turned out <laughs> from all the how we thought it was going to turn out, right? Yes. And once you're in the job as a parent, Not only does it change from child to child, but it also changes weekly, monthly with the same child because they're growing. So your two-year-old is going to be completely different to your six-month-old and it's going to be completely different to your 18-year-old. And you have to figure it out as you go. This feeling or concept of, well, I'm an adult now, you know, I should know what to do. I'm a parent, you know, I'm the bigger one. I'm like the wiser one. And I say, you know, just let go of that. Because we're literally, it is the hardest job on the planet, bar none. And I will argue with anybody because we are learning every day. You know, my child started school today. My child had a hard day in school today. My child had a really good day at school today. My child needs to do a project today. My child, you know, there are, every day there's a new challenge. 
And there is not another single job in the world that has so many challenges ongoing for years and years and years. So I think that is, forms a big part of resistance. It's like, no, I'm supposed to know what to do. And if I don't, then, oh my God, I'm a failure as a parent. And then that just keeps us in our stuff, you know? And another thing is that we don't like discomfort as human beings. It's just all it is. So when we are getting, like we've talked about extensively through this conversation, when we're getting triggered by our children, initially, very instantaneously, it takes us back to our emotional memories. We're not even aware of what's happening. It triggers feelings of discomfort in us. And it's really so much easier to get somebody else to do something than it is to take responsibility for us. Why, why is my response this way? Why am I screaming every time that happens? Why am I slamming the door? Why am I, whatever my behavior is, whatever my reaction is, yeah? So it's, it's hard, it's difficult. I don't wanna look at my stuff. Nobody wants to look at their stuff. And I think that forms another part of resistance. And especially for the parents who've kind of grown up with that kind of parenting themselves, like you just do what the, what the parent says. Earlier generations, it was a lot like that. So let's talk about the guilt on parenting styles. I think we all, we all suffer from guilt. Yes, it's uh, part and parcel of being a parent, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but it definitely, it can be levels of guilt. I find that when people start to understand what an impact uh, and, you know, most people are open to the understanding of, wow, the way I respond to my child really makes a difference. And mostly we tend to go back to, oh, my God, and I've totally done this. And I still have guilt for a few things that I, the way I was, I've tapped for a lot of them, too. But, you know, the way I parented when my kids were really little, you know, it's, it's like a cringing in my body. And I can totally feel it. And I can totally resonate when parents say this to me that, oh, God, but, you know, all these years, A, we beat ourselves up. Why didn't I get it right? So to that, I want to say hindsight is always twenty twenty. Okay, we could always have done everything better. Even if we did something yesterday that, you know, caused that rupture or breakdown with the child, we're like, oh my God, I'm such a bad parent. Why did I lash out like that? So we're, we're so focused on like being the ideal parent. We want to be the best parent for our child. So even once we understand this model of conscious parenting, getting ourselves out of our own way, misunderstanding, arguments, breakdown, communication, all of that, that happens. So I would say rather than focus on being, focusing on being the ideal parent who never gets it wrong, this is huge, the huge ask of ourselves. What's really more important is to focus on the repair, as it's called, rather than preventing the breakdown or preventing whatever happens. But that's so counterintuitive because we live in a society where preventative is, is the key. Of course it is. And go on then, try and prevent any misunderstanding, any argument from happening with your child for the next 48 hours. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. But think about it. And I've had this experience with clients who've actually had repair made by their parents late in life when they're adults, okay? So imagine if you're a child and your parent yells at you and you feel so not nice, you go and hide or however you cope with that. If the parent is then able to come back and say, I'm sorry, I yelled. I didn't like what you did. And maybe I could have said it like this, for example. What would that feel like? As opposed to if it were just shoved under the carpet and then the parent said, you know, after a few hours when you came back out or whatever, and they said, right, it's dinner time. Get, you know, so there's no repair happening here. Yeah, it's just there was a breakdown, wasn't repaired. And if this happens consistently 
Yeah, there it deepens the sense of disconnection between the parent and child. And if it happens often enough and long enough, it can really create shame, humiliation in the child, which is really harmful for because they're developing a sense of self through us. So the repair is more important. So the guilt comes from, oh no, I made a mistake, right? But but of course, remember the no training? We didn't have training. We are bound to make mistakes. It's just going to happen. This is life, right? So apology is another thing that people don't like sometimes as parents. I don't need to apologize to my child. And it's not about the apology. It's about understanding, right? Because then you're modeling to them too. Because what we want to model to them is be good, have good manners, be nice, all of those lovely positive things, right? But if we try and be perfect all the time, what we're telling them is implicitly that you have to be perfect all the time. And that's a big ask. So I'd say if we're open to owning up to our mistakes that, you know, I yelled and I'm sorry I yelled and I wish I'd been in a calmer space, but I hadn't. And you don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to tell them all about your stressful day, but Mm. you just have to acknowledge that maybe that didn't feel so good for you when I yelled. And I still want to say that it's not okay to come home at eight when you said you were coming home at six. And can we do it differently next time? Right. This is repair. Mm, I like that. I like the idea of we don't have to be perfect all the time. Of course, because we're so focused, like I said, on being the ideal parent. There is no such thing. You know, I could, like I said, it could be really calm. You get a piece of bad news on the phone, it could just throw you. And if you're in, and then you're in that limbic space in your brain, yeah? And then you're just being engulfed with emotions and you know your rational brain is offline and in that moment your child comes to you with something you are not going to be able to be rational and thoughtful with your child in that moment it's impossible so i'd say rather than focus on that make sure that repair happens quite often whatever needs to happen for that repair to happen because that's really important i had a client recently who told me that they had quite a lot of uh, verbal violence from one of their parents from her dad yeah when they were little growing up and it was quite scary as a child and very recently in his older years the dad apparently came to this lady that I was working with and said I've had time to think about things and when I think back to when you were little I know I was very angry and you know I don't know all the words he used but he actually made repair at this late stage and it meant so much wow it's never too late And actually, when you say never too late, I really want to say to all the parents who are listening, uh, oh, this is also part of the guilt, actually, that, you know, when we say, oh, no, I did it wrong. And oh, no, I did it badly. And oh, no, I gave them this stuff when they were little. And oh, I wish I hadn't. All the things we beat ourselves up for, I really want to say it's never too late to change the relationship with your child. My son was 11 or 12 when I changed my relationship with him and also with my daughter, because I really started to parent consciously at that time. There was this one lady I worked with who was in her 50s and her daughter was nearly 30 or was 30. And she changed her relationship with her daughter when her daughter was 30. Okay. So it's never too late. I really want to stress this because guilt is a big driver and then guilt is also keeping you in your own stuff. I love to say this. A lot of people don't understand it or don't accept it. We're all doing the best that we can in every given moment. And then I hear... And then I hear, but no, I could have done better. I could have done. That's hindsight. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. But in that moment, in that moment, if you could have done better, why would you choose not to? 
And I would say that for anything that anybody's ever done, how, no matter how bad it was. So either they are not mentally in a good state to do it, like whatever you bring up, it holds true for all actions because we're all just doing what we can in the moment. I want to close this interview now, Falgani, with a few rapid questions. Okay. What is the book that you have gifted the most or left the strongest impression on you? Well, if we're talking about parenting, I really like Dan Siegel. So you can watch him on, online. You don't even have to read his books. There's a lot of cool videos of him, but he's written some good books. Fill in the blank. Love is? There if you allow yourself to feel it. What is something that you would want to learn more about right now? I like to know, like about the way the brain works. I find that really helpful, in, even in the model of parenting. To, I love the whole neuroscience aspect of it. It really helps you to understand why you reacted rather than you responded. And for me, I, I just want to know about everything. Like anything that I'm interested in, I just want to know more about. What is the best lesson that your dad or your mom taught you? I learned a lot from my mother. What she really imparted to me anyway, the way I saw it, you know, she said, I just want you to be happy. And it made no sense to me. But she really meant it. I mean, she completely, no matter what, you know, if I hadn't called her for three weeks, like I'd call her. And she, there would never be a why haven't I heard from you. We were just like, oh, it's so nice to talk to you. You know, that just as, as an example. I mean, she was just there. I always felt that she was, not to say that she was an ideal parent either. She had her own stuff from her life but she really meant that and I I really kind of felt into that as an adult and especially since I've become this conscious parent what that really means it's actually making me a bit teary to say that you know and it kind of ties in with that that love question that you asked you know she just said I just want you to be happy and she really meant it you know she didn't (laughs) it's quite exceptional to really mean something like that. It's you not know, conditional, right? Yes, that's it, actually. You know, when people talk about unconditional love, I have felt it from my mother, and that has mm. been like a huge lesson. I don't know if I'm that kind of parent, but I sure aspire to be where, you know, a child can actually feel. I didn't feel it when I was little. I, I think it's hard to feel that, but as a parent, I really know. So I'd say that's the biggest. What advice would you give to your 30-year-old self? Oh, feel your feelings. What closing thoughts do you have on conscious parenting that you would like to share that could inspire our audience? Okay, so I, w- I want to actually read out a quote from Dan Siegel, um, which I think completely encapsulates everything we've been talking about. And he says in one of his books, I think it's the Parenting from Inside Out book, he says the challenge we all share is to embrace our humanity with humor and patience so that we can, in turn, relate to our children with openness and kindness. To continually chastise ourselves for our errors keeps us involved in our own emotional issues and out of relationship with our children. Oh, that's really beautiful. Thank you so much, Falgani. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Thanks, Donna. Parenting is really hard. And, and I think this is going to be really helpful. Where can people find you? My website is freeingemotions.com. I'm on Instagram, falgani.matha. And I work at the body group in Central 
Thank you so much again. Thanks, Dana. I don't know if I will ever get this conscious parenting down, but I'm more kind to myself as a parent, more conscious of my discomfort when my children are in their discomfort, and I'm more willing to own my mistakes when they happen. If you want to learn more, check out freeingemotions.com. Falcony and I would love to hear what's the single biggest insight that you're taking away from this conversation. Visit my website, interested.blog, to access the show notes or leave a comment on my Interested Podcast Facebook page. You can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts or Spotify. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend.